Well, good morning, church. Uh, for those who don't know me, uh, my name is Kevin Crow, and I have had uh, the privilege and blessing to serve uh, students since August of this year. And uh, just as a church, uh, I just want to say thank you um, for loving not only me, but my family um, since we, we've been a part of BCC. So thank you so much for allowing me to be a part, but also just loving my family so well. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be looking at the entire book of Matthew 1. Or it's not book, sorry, chapter. That'd be a lot, and we would not get through at any given uh, respectable time if that was the case. But the entire chapter of uh, Matthew 1 this morning. But before we do, um, I'd like to take one more chance to pray and just kind of get me out of the way and allow the Spirit to lead us this morning. So, Father, um, we come to you this morning, and I, I just pray that you... Remove me, and that you speak, um, that we are here uh, with open hearts, open minds, just expected to have expectation of you to, to show, reveal, and teach us something this morning, Lord. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you remove me out of the way, and that your word is spoken, uh, your truth is spoken, and that we, uh, we just hear from you this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want you to think about when you were a child. Um, and maybe that wasn't long ago, maybe it was, I'm not going to judge that, but I want you to think about dreams that you had. Like, not dreams like, oh, one day I want to be a fireman or a policeman or a doctor, but just like ridiculous dreams. Like, the dream that, you know what, I want to be able to hold on to something so hot that it will erase my fingerprints so I can become a spy and the world will never know who I am. Or maybe your dream is that one day that you will wake up with gills on the side of your, uh, of your chest, and you'll be able to be the most amazing swimmer ever. And I look forward to hearing maybe some crazy dreams that you had as a child. But for me, there was a show that existed called Nickelodeon's uh, Double Dare. And I had the dream that I could go and dominate Double Dare. That it was full of trivia, it was full of like these like crazy games that you had to compete in. And then ultimately, if you were good enough, you make, it, you make it to the final, and then you get a chance to go through this incredibly messy obstacle course. You're going through all the, the goo and stuff, and you grab these flags, and you win the most epic prizes of the day. If you grew up in like the late 80s, early 90s like myself, like this was the show you wanted to be on. For those who have no clue what I'm talking about, let's watch this real quick and look at the epic prizes you could win. Why Double Dare is for kids only. Leaves the number one, the questions. Double Dare asks questions about only things that kids are experts in. What is Batman's real name? Reason number two, the prizes. Double Dare has got what you want. What would an adult do with a BMX bike? Reason number three, the obstacle course. Double Dare dares kids to run over, under, and through eight outrageous obstacles. An adult would look pretty silly trying to tackle this course. Double Dare, the game show for kids only. Weekdays only on Nickelodeon. That's right, you too could win a VCR for your family. How epic would that be right now, right, to win that VCR? Um, I look at those prizes and I'm like, man, I, I don't know why those were so incredible, but they drew me in and I wanted to be there. I don't know what it is about kids and childhood, but we just enjoy being messy. The majority of kids just enjoy being messy. Maybe it's when you were like really little, like, or as a parent, you remember when your kids were um, really little, they would eat and it would be like covered head to toe and there was a guaranteed bath following um, mealtime. Or maybe it was the fact that like um, your child just thought they were the next great artist and they decided there was a section of your wall that needed to display the most amazing art ever seen by man and they would take the markers and whatever else they found, some of it clean, some of it not, and they would make this most amazing just artwork for you to be proud of of them. 
Or they would go outside anytime it rained and dig around in the mud and immediately come in with the, uh, the dog and jump on your furniture and just create a complete mess. But for whatever reason, as we get older, that begins to change. Maybe we're afraid to ruin our clothes. Maybe we're afraid of uh, and worried about an image or an appearance that comes with being messy. Maybe it's that we think that we're no longer like um, going to have value for something. We diminish the value of something if it becomes messy. But for whatever reason, our mess that we have is no longer something we embrace on the outside. But the mess that we have is now something that becomes, as we get older, something that we completely try to hide and hold and com- just compress way down deep inside of us. And we want no one to notice the mess that we have going on. Maybe it's family dynamics, maybe it's work, school issues, maybe it's finances, maybe it's marriage issues, mental health concerns. The list can go on, but messy no longer becomes fun, and if it's said, becomes a burden and something that we try to squash and we try to just, just hold on to and not allow anyone else to see. It's a burden that we try to control, it's a burden that we can try to hide, and it's something that we want completely invisible to the rest of the world. It's no longer the artwork that we displayed. It's something that, man, we hope it never gets out. So on this last Sunday of Advent, we begin to transition from longing and waiting to looking forward and looking towards the nativity, the the story of Jesus' birth. I would imagine on your way in this morning, or maybe even in your own household, you have a nativity set up. You have this display that you either saw or you get to see every day in your house where you've got shepherds watching over um, the animals, and it's, it's, the animals are just so calm and peaceful, and they just have this like ambiance about them. And then you've got this, um, in, this stable that is just full of just clean hay, and, and you've got Joseph and Mary, and, and Mary's either holding a swaddling baby or there's a baby uh, that's there in the manger, and it's this beautiful, simplistic scene full of wonder. And that's what we come to expect and we come to see. And it's got this, you know, this, this cleanliness about it. It's got this, just this amazing rest that we see and embrace from it. But even songs that we sing about this time, like Away in a Manger, it claims that baby Jesus didn't even cry. I'm not going to sing that's Chad's territory, but these words, Away in a Manger, no crib for a bed, laid down The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the bright sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. The cattle are lowing. The baby awakes. But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I don't know if it's our familiarity with the story. I don't know if it's just our human nature. But we, as we continue on, completely sterilize the nativity story. We we remove all the real messiness of it, right? We remove the messiness of childbirth, like all the aches, the pains, the passing out when the child is born, and that's just the fathers, right? Like the, we, we miss out on like all the, the fluids and all the gross and messiness that happens when a baby is born. And then let's not even start talking about the animals, right? Like I, we only have chickens, and I can go clean that coop out, and by the evening it is completely covered. It is so gross. It is messy, but yet you never will see anything of that when we see a nativity story. The other thing we tend to do is, as we become familiar with the, di- the dynamics of Jesus and his birth, we, we start to sterilize all of the family dynamics that Jesus was born into in Matthew 1. We, we haven't gotten inside of the, the shepherds and all of that. We uh, read his lineage here, and it plunges us right into the family dynamics, the messy family dynamics that Jesus was born into. A betrothed and supposed virgin ends up pregnant, and the man she is engaged to finds out, 
This is a mess that it would even be a mess in our culture today, but it'd be on messy when you think about the culture and religion and the mindset of that time. And so this is a difficult place for both Joseph and Mary to find themselves. So in this mess, on this last Sunday of Advent, we reflect on a word and a theme that we all need. We reflect on this word of love and how amazingly woven it is, not only into the birth of Jesus, but into our own lives in this very room, this very morning today. So despite all of our nostalgic feelings we have of the shepherds and angels we find in a nativity story, this is the perfect passage for us to start to wonder and talk about the love of God and how it entered into a stable of messiness. It entered into a world of humanness, of messy family dynamics. And that is where we begin this morning in Matthew 1. So how do we get there? Matthew 1 starts with this lineage all explained out. Matthew 1 begins from the very beginning of all the family dynamics that played out. And it's a list of names and stories and heritage. And we could spend an entire morning just on this section of the, the stories of greatness and, and all of the, uh, the history behind this. But there's a few names I want to point out this morning. And then it's interesting. And let me explain why it's interesting. Because when, when it, the Old Testament would lay out, or even the New Testament would lay out, a family dynamic, a family history, a family lineage, very, very rarely, rarely is there ever a woman ever mentioned. And if it was, it was pretty significant. Now, whether it's because of poor, antiquated views of that time, the, the mindset of that time, whatever the reason, that men were the only ones ever listed. But yet in Matthew 1, when it lists out the lineage of Jesus, there's five, four women mentioned by name and a fifth alluded to. Right? You can see these. The, the Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, um, Uriah's wife, which we know as Bathsheba, and Mary. And so of these women, the first that was mentioned was involved in an incest scandal. The second was a prostitute. The third was a Moabite. And as far as the Jewish culture was concerned, she was on that same level as a prostitute, if not lower. The, uh, the fourth was trapped and forced into a messy, a messy scheme of rape and adultery by King David. And the fifth turned up pregnant before she was ever married. I don't know about you, I've got some messy family dynamics, but this just brought it to a whole nother level, amen, right? Like, what, can you only imagine if that was your family dynamic in history? And I want to kind of pause right here for a moment to, to kind of point out a life principle for us. It's important to know about our family history. It's important to know about our heritage. But the reality is we do not have to be defined by the past in which we come from. Every one of us have an opportunity that we can do something, be something different. We do not have to be defined by the past, in which it's important to know, but it does not define us. So the second thing to note here is that both Joseph and Mary are named in this lineage. Naming Mary as his mother emphasizes the virgin birth. Naming Joseph as his father emphasizes and connects Jesus to the royal line of David. All throughout the Old Testament, there's prophetic um, scripture that, that talks and tells us of the coming Messiah. And in Jeremiah 23, 5 specifically, it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. This is fulfilling the Jewish Messiah, the calling, the, the, the descendant of David. He's coming. And so for Joseph to be named Jesus' father, it is incredibly important. Adoption in ancient Jewish cultural times worked totally different than it does today. When adoption was claimed during that time, like when, when a father claimed a child who, by everyone else's eyes, did not, regardless of appearance, regardless of biological parentage, 
in legal and relational terms, it did not matter. He was his own. Every inheritance, every land, every value, every hand-me-down, all the possessions, it ended all question. Everything was as his. There's beauty in that. It's not like today where a judge has to sign off on and, and people of the community can question legitimacy or wonder, you know, where things are happened or how things happened or where a child came from. None of that. That child is his own and it is without question. So for Joseph to appear in the genealogy of the, as the father of Jesus before Matthew even talks about Jesus' birth gives us an important foreshadowing as the readers of what's to come and the weight of to come despite the burden and the mess and the drama going around all and that surrounds all of Mary's premarital pregnancy. We know that Joseph is claiming this child. You see, engagements in, that, in this time frame were more like contracts. Engagements in this time weren't like today where, you know, a, they're not like a patrol as, as what they're referred to. An engagement in this time is not like, oh, I've fallen in love. I listened to Beyonce. She told me to put a ring on it. Let's go get married. Like, that's not what's happening here, right? Like, there is an exchange of contracts. There's an exchange of land, possessions. If I was a woman at that time, like, you better believe I better be worth a couple cows and a, and a camel and a sheep and maybe even more, right? Like, your value as a woman, like, your esteem is given on the, the exchange rate of what you're worth. And so there's a lot being traded here. And there's a contract to be made. And typically, you know, whether they were got to meet each other or they were chosen, who knows? I mean, there's a lot that goes on here. And there's a lot of layers of dynamics that's happening here. And so here we have the patrols. They're difficult to call off. And because it was a contract, it didn't, not only did it involve the couple, we even think about messy divorces and like, oh, we worry about the children and things of that nature today, and rightfully so. But in that, this day and age, there's even more. There's family dynamics of what's going to happen. Most likely, they made this contract and they moved to wherever they're going to live. And sometimes it may be close to family, sometimes not. And so for a split to happen, it often left a contract to be broken. Not only did it left the families in shame, but the woman would be left there. She'd be in destitute because she'd been away from all of her family. She'd been taken and stripped all of her resources, money, finances, and been left to figure it out all on her own. What a mess, right? And while betrothed, even though the wife did not have to, they, they lived kind of together, they would go live with another couple. Maybe it was a family member, maybe it was a relative, maybe it was somebody that was just like a family friend. And there would be this expectation of sexual faithfulness. And what would happen is those possessions that Joseph now has, he would use those things to now build a house, build a home for the family. And when that home was ready, then they would get married and they would start and begin anew. So all this was taking place. And so when these contracts are broken, there's layers upon layers upon layers of just mess that just creates all sorts of dynamics of worry, all sorts of dynamics of complications. And so here we are, all of this going on, and yet there's, from, Matthew 8, from Matthew's um, scripture, they're not even married yet, right? And then we find in verse 18, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Spoiler alert, this is a mess. This is an absolute mess, not only for this time period, for just them as a couple, but for the entire community. Mary would have been viewed by her community as unfaithful. She would have been viewed as someone who was being lesser than. And then the mindset would have been to take her out of the town and to have stoned her. The mindset would have been like, oh, we can't have our community being unclean. we got to get this woman out of town. She's been unfaithful. Everybody grab the rocks, grab their stones, and let's go. Like, that would have been the mentality. 
There'd have been no frame of reference to believe or understand that the Holy Spirit could have been involved. Like the other, other women that we know about, or they would have known about, um, became miraculously pregnant. They were already married. We know of Sarah, Hannah, Mary's cousin Elizabeth. They became pregnant. They were barren and became pregnant by their husband. So for Mary in the culture of this time, a mess. Your heart, or at least mine, breaks for her. Like, what are you, what are you going to do? We're not sure how Joseph found out about the pregnancy. He may, Mary may have told him. We don't know. There may have been rumors and he confronted her about it. It may have been the fact that it got far enough along that she started showing and, and then it came about. However he found out, we can be confident his initial feelings of betrayal, his initial feelings of that she had committed adultery with another man, whatever it may have been, it would have been devastating. It would have probably caused a whole lot of internal turmoil. That internal mess inside we were just talking about. I can only imagine the dynamics going on inside of Joseph at that time. And yet Joseph's upcoming actions are important to the story. In verse 19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and willing to put her to shame, unwilling, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The fact that Joseph decided to divorce Mary is not what matters here. Um, in his culture and the religion of the time, he had every right to do so. But what's interesting, like he could have brought all the shame to her and to her family. He decided to divorce her quietly. And I don't know if it was for selfish reasons. I don't know if it was because out of love. I don't know if it was just because simply he just didn't know what to do. And it just made the simplistic sense to just to do it this way. But divorcing her quietly was a compassionate one. And then here we go. God enters into the mess. Verse 20. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. An angel arrives to explain that Mary wasn't unfaithful. The Holy Spirit um, brought this child upon. And when we see angel messengers all throughout Jesus' birth and life, and with the Joseph, it's Mary, it's the shepherds, and so on, there's all these times the angels appear announcing that God is breaking into the world. God is showing up and signaling that the day of the Lord is here. That the prophets, all that prophecy that has been talked about, it is here. There's rejoicing to be made. There's excitement. And everything is about to change. At the end of Matthew 1, Joseph married, uh, married Mary. And they named the baby Jesus, indicating his reception, his receptivity and obedience to the message of God. Joseph trusted God in a significant and life-altering way. And with his obedience, Joseph entrusted him and his entire family to the reputation of God. Joseph's faith, and God was bigger than his fear of his community. And that's something we need to hear for ourselves. Joseph's and his mindset, his values, the reputation which he decided to stand upon for him and his family. And I imagine this was a joint thing for both him, Joseph, and Mary. But they decided it was bigger than any uh, squabbling. It was bigger than any murmurings going on within the community. It was bigger than any perception that could have been brought their way. They decided their faith was in God was bigger than their fear of their community. And the incarnation, um, it's about God entering humanity. Jesus enters this world born of ordinary human beings, but he enters it into the messiness of human struggles. This was not a pristine family without issues. This was not a way for us to paint clean in this beautiful narrative scene. That even though we have the hindsight of knowing what's going on, they were faithful. They, their path was not easy. Their life was not free of burdens and mess. We know that the angel came to Joseph and Mary, but it speaks nothing of all the neighbors and the community members and them having any idea of what was going on. The rumor mirror, the gossip, 
the perception of what could have been taking place could have been endless. And this probably didn't end just with the birth of Jesus. It probably remained all the way through Jesus' life of questioning and concern and what was going on and calling out and all of these things. But despite all that, Joseph decided to marry her anyways. For all we know, people assumed he was indicating and accepted they had a broken marriage, but he said, forget, forget that. I'm doing it anyways. The hindsight of history allows us to know that they were faithful. It allows us to know the big picture. And because we, we know how the story turned out. We know that a son was sent for us to live a perfect life, to die, conquer death for us. We get to know that. But the incarnation is not about Jesus being born into a stable instead of a palace. It's not a, about but that. It's about the proximity and experience that God entering into the messiness of human relationships. That Jesus took on all of humanity, all of our mess, all of our brokenness, all of our sin from day one. Family dynamics is messy. It goes, he goes completely against the grain of societal norms. And it was God pointing out from the very beginning that things are going to be different now. Things are different because I bring a love for you, for me, from the very beginning. God does not run from our humanity. He does not run from our messes, but he enters into our places and embraces it. He embraces our brokenness. He embraces our messiness all because he loves us. And there's beauty in that. Our situations aren't too much for him. Our situations are not too distant. No matter how broken, no matter how unworthy we feel, there is a love for us that is unexplainable. We try to grasp at it, but from the very beginning of brokenness and messiness, God said, I have a love for you that is completely different than the rest of the world. I have a love for you because I know you as my children. There's a line of an old hymn that says, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. The Advent narrative, the story of joy, the story of peace, the story of hope, is ultimately bathed in the love of God. We trust God because God loves us. The story of Christmas, the incarnation, it doesn't run from conflict. It doesn't run from pain. It doesn't run from our humanness, but embraces it. All the mess of humanity out of love. We, in this room, we are loved. It's a beautiful verse in Isaiah that talks about beauty from ashes. That despite our brokenness, despite the ash that we come from, the brokenness that we come from, that God finds beauty in every single one of us. And that, that is amazing. And so today, this morning, we're going to end things a little bit different. There's a lot of mess in this world. There's a lot of brokenness. And some of it we inherit. Some of it we create. And so this morning, what I want to do, I'm going to tell you kind of explain it, and then um, I'll invite you to the altar. But there's some rocks in these baskets up front. And I don't know what messiness is going on in your life. I don't know what brokenness is going on. I don't know if it's a struggle that's being hidden inside. I don't know if it's a family dynamic. I know of the mess that is going on in my own family. But these rocks that are at the altar, there's nothing magical about them. But they're a reminder, a reminder of things that maybe we deserve, but we don't get because of the love that exists for us. And so this morning I invite you to come up and grab a stone and spend some time in prayer if you want or grab a stone. And if you, once you grab one, you get home, I encourage you to put it in your nativity scene if you've got one. If you don't, put it under your tree just as a reminder that this week to look at the dynamics within your own 
household, your own family, the own messiness, your own internal struggles. And use it as a reminder that we have a love for us that came from day one, that entered to our sin, that entered into our brokenness, that entered into our own lives. And so as I pray, I pray that you are reminded that you are loved. You are reminded that you are a gift, and you are reminded in this Advent season as we enter into the birth, there is messiness in our lives, but there is a love that is greater than all of it. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning broken, full of mess. But Lord, I am for one grateful that you have a love for me that is beyond words. So I thank you. I thank you from the very beginning of time that you decided that you loved me despite the daily shortcomings that I have so that I am worthy and I am loved as your son. We pray these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.